Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus, increment 193. And we're posing a question today. And this may take up more than one increment, and maybe not even consecutively, but more than one increment of Hebrews, because it has to do with the distillation phase of our study, which means the concentrated, coming to the concentrated meaning and purpose of Hebrews on the level of our own time. And that's really the most important phase of our study. So we're going to, in a sort of a rough cut manner, introduce the question today, is Hebrews an apocalypse? Not in terms of literary genre, but in terms of effect as a revelation of God to our generation, let's say it that way. Before we get started, as I've mentioned often before, we're a few weeks ahead or a couple weeks ahead at least in our recording of these messages. And this message will air around January 18th or 19th or be published or for public view on that date. But I'm speaking today on January 4th and receive the news today from his daughter, his beloved daughter, that our beloved brother, Miles Pahoney, has gone into the presence of the Lord, departed from this life suddenly yesterday on January 3rd, and is now with his Lord. I have a vivid memory of Miles, seeing him many times after services here in the Alamo, emerging from one of the side rooms, the overflow rooms where the messages are viewed on a monitor. And I recall the last talks we had in the hall, ones of mutual edification and mutual love and grace exchanged between us. He was a longtime faithful member of Tetelestai Phalanx, a faithful believer, a lover of God, a lover of his precious family, whom we convey our condolences and prayers to the throne of grace, that God's great compassion will visit them during this time. Jennifer and his wife, also his daughter Jennifer, who informed me today, his wife Nancy and his children and friends, family, extended family, Matt and Linda and others, we extend our hearty love and regards to you and our prayers that God's compassion, great compassion, will be poured out in this time of sorrow. Knowing that he is, in fact, in the place of the fullness of joy, in the glorious splendor of his Savior, and awaiting a reward of the crown of righteousness from the righteous judge. Miles endured almost unimaginable adversity in this life and passed through it by the extraordinary grace and mercy of God. And he, as others, I believe with all my heart, will be in that chronicle of faith heroes, the Faith Hall of Fame, 
which I believe is still being written and names like his are still being cataloged going way back to Hebrews chapter 11 verses 4 to 40. I've been saying this often but each time I say it it's with a heartfelt love. We'll see you again Miles. We'll see you soon. Father, we ask that you will convey the inimitable compassion, kindness, and philanthropy to Miles' family, that only a personal visitation from you, Father, and from your Son, Jesus Christ, through the spirit of comfort, can administer. And we pray now as we embark on a continuation of our study of Hebrews that you will grant us the super consciousness that's necessary to lay hold of transcendent realities and to truly see Jesus with the eyes of the heart. And we ask this in his name, amen. The question in true Thomas Aquinas fashion and method, whether Hebrews is an apocalypse. We'll extend that slightly to say whether Hebrews is an apocalypse or a revelation of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. That's a theme that just won't die and should not. In fact, it should be continually expounded. So, can Hebrews be viewed as an apocalypse or a divine disclosure? Not apocalypse in terms of genre. The book of Revelation is that. But apocalypse in terms of effect and impact and visionary presentation. Can Hebrews, the homily we're studying, be viewed as an apocalypse or a divine disclosure of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, or better stated, of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance? The question belongs to a distillation phase in Hebrews. The distillation phase in which Hebrews in toto is considered in its concentrated reality. So we anticipate that phase with this and I think other following increments will be anticipating that distillation phase. And so today simply is Hebrews an apocalypse. I think you'll see, and this may be a part one, I'm not sure yet. And so by distillation, the final phase of the study of a biblical book, whether Revelation or Romans, the final phase is what I call distillation. By distillation, the particular book or document is presented in its concentrated and coherent form. By distillation, its message is revealed 
in a clear summation. So I want to begin this study with a primary series of observations and then follow up with a secondary series of observations. If I seem slightly hesitant in teaching this today or if it's kind of stop and start, it's because this only came to me this morning as I was studying. It's a gradual upbuilding, but it startlingly came to me this morning when I simply began to write about this message. And so it's only a few, a couple hours old, really. So it's going to be roughly considered, it's going to be unfolding as I speak, as it were. And you'll see the notes are going to be somewhat rough, the messages are going to be somewhat rough, because we are dealing here with a rough cut diamond, as it were. We'll begin this study then first with a preliminary or a primary, let's call it, series of observations. About 10, I think, we'll start with. And then we'll move into a secondary series of observations. Whether this goes into another increment, I don't know. First observation. A book or an epistle or a prophetic oracle or a psalm in the Bible may not be intended by its human author to be a revelation of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ per se. The writer doesn't start out saying this is going to be a revelation or an apocalypse of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. He has usually Almost every New Testament document has an occasion that calls it forth. It has some set of circumstances that it's writing into, especially the epistles, but also even the gospels. And so a book or an epistle or a prophetic oracle or a psalm in the Bible may not be intended by its human author to be a revelation of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ per se. The writer may have set out with an entirely other objective. But we must remember that all scripture is God-breathed. This is such a fundamental principle. Theopneustos in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed, literally. We say inspired, but it's God breathed. God breathed it out. The Holy Spirit breathed it. And that the human authors of Scripture are the recipients of the guidance of the Spirit of truth. That principle is nucleated primarily in passages like 2 Peter 1, 20-21. That does not mean that the writers of Scripture were merely taking dictation from the Holy Spirit. Not at all. They all had their motives and intentions in writing, and their humanity was fully intact when they wrote or spoke or dictated to a secretary to write things down. The spirits of the prophets were subject to the prophets, as 1 Corinthians 14 says. That means they didn't speak as demoniacs do in manic outbursts, unaware of what they were saying. Second observation. These are all primary, a series of observations. 
again, forgive their rough nature. But second, the Holy Spirit, the first mover in the inspiration and writing of Scripture, has an omniscient horizon that was unavailable to the prophets or the apostles or the psalm composers. When we read novels, and if I ever have an extra few minutes in the day, I like to read novels, but we have some novels written in the first person. We have other novels written in the third person. Still other novels are written in what is called the omniscient person. That means a person that's writing knows what the character's thinking. He knows of events that normally one wouldn't know of, so he kind of plays the part of an omniscient viewer. Well, the Holy Spirit is omniscient, and his view is all-knowing. But not the human writer. The human writer writes to a local situation, as the Hebrews author did, as Paul did when he wrote Romans, as Paul did when he wrote Galatians, as the writer to Titus did when he wrote to Titus in Crete. There's always some local proximate situation going on in the scriptures, especially the New Testament we're speaking of now. Even in the Psalms, the psalmist may write a psalm of praise and worship to God and be unaware that he's presenting a universally saving significance of Jesus Christ in a way that he's rather unaware of, but the Holy Spirit isn't unaware of it because the Holy Spirit is omniscient and speaks with an omniscient horizon, if we could even say it that way. So the Holy Spirit, the first mover in the inspiration and writing of Scripture, has an omniscient horizon that's unavailable to the prophets or apostles or psalm composers or to human beings in general. He will have intended, that is the Holy Spirit, he would have intended that a particular biblical document would have not only a local purpose, speaking to an immediate circumstance or situation, but also a purpose that would have profound impact on an audience remote in time and space from the original writer and the initial recipients. We're dealing here with the branch of theology called bibliology and with the theological specialties of interpretation and doctrines. Third primary observation. We've previously asked this question in connection with Romans and with all of Paul's writings taken together as a single body, the Pauline corpus, whether they qualify as a coherent revelation of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universal impact of the Christ event, at the center of which is the death of the cross which Jesus endured for us all. In both of these cases, we reached an affirmative answer, not in terms of genre, but in terms of effect and impact. Romans presents an apocalypse or a revelation, a disclosure of Jesus Christ and his universally saving significance. So does the body of all of Paul's writings taken together do so. In fact, fourth observation, consider Romans. 
Paul's immediate and local purpose, we could call it, in writing the epistle to the saints in Rome was to address a serious rift among them between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile ones. To do so, he presented and defended what he called my gospel, the testimony of God about his son. Paul's intention, his human intention, yes, guided by the Holy Spirit, was the defense and confirmation of the true gospel in which the saving justice of God is revealed to all who believe, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, as he says in Romans 1, 16 to 17. Paul's original intention was not to expound the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ in Romans, but in the fulfillment of his immediate goal, that's exactly what the divine author of scripture produced through that document called Romans. And we could argue that he did it for us, for recipients of this epistle who were historically far removed from the original audience. We are that. We are historically removed and remote from the original audience. But God the Holy Spirit, with his omniscience, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence, had a purpose for Romans that even exceeded its initial intention to the Roman saints for us today. Don't talk to me about the irrelevance of the Bible. Don't even begin to think about it. For us, Romans the epistle is a stunningly glorious portrait of Jesus, the Son of God, in all of his saving glory. Now, again, I'm summarizing. Some of these things I'm saying today are things that beg fanning out. They beg being fleshed out further and further, but I have much to say, so I'm only summarizing in these principles. The fifth principle, consider Galatians. The purpose of the apostolic human author was urgent. It addressed a head-on, a defection of the churches in the province of Galatia in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey who were deserting the grace of God for another gospel, which in Paul's view was no gospel at all. To a current audience far removed from that local situation, Galatians portrays a powerful salvation brought to all of humanity through the, quote, coming of faith, which is the same thing as the coming of Christ in Galatians 3.23 and 3.25. And it portrays a justification that comes through the faithfulness of the Son of God. And as such, it comes to all. Sixth, consider the pastoral epistle, so-called, of Titus. The ostensible purpose of the human writer to Titus was to commission him to, quote, set right certain unfinished matters in Crete. To appoint faithful Christian leaders there and to silence certain egregious errors of doctrine and behavior in Crete. So it too addressed the possibility of a great defection as Galatians did and as we're going to see as Hebrews also did in another way. 
There is surely precious application to us throughout this epistle as there is in Romans. And all the epistles of Paul, in fact, all the New Testament addresses itself not only to a universal and cosmic redemption, but to individual salvations. Individual and personal, but that's not my subject right now. It is an important subject, and it will be broached in the near future, no doubt. So consider Titus. The writer didn't intend to present it as a universally saving, significant picture of Jesus Christ. But what is striking in Titus is that it too presents a vision of the salvation of all human beings through the incomprehensible grace and philanthropy of God through Jesus Christ and through the Spirit. Titus 2.11, Titus 3.4-7 as examples of concentrated examples. Sixth, or rather seventh, let's say seventh, Observation, the seventh observation. Told you this was rough. Similar observations can be made with regard to First and Second Timothy, especially of one, if one considers such passages as, and I recommend you at least read these, First Timothy 2, 1 to 6, which could qualify itself as a micro-apocalypse. You'll see that term often. We just introduced it in our Martin Luther King Day special message, a micro-apocalypse. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 6 would qualify as that. 1 Timothy 4, 9 to 10, 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13, and others passages. The intention of the divine author of scripture in all these cases of the pastoral epistles is therefore seen to transcend the proximate cause of the human author and his intention. The Holy Spirit's intention is to give the particular piece of writing an inestimable value to current readers and to impart hope to readers on the level of their own time and place. And that again is us. Seventh, eighth make that. The eighth primary observation. Again, you're seeing the birth of a doctrine here, so it's not a neat process. Eighth observation. What is required in seeing a given biblical document as a divine disclosure of Jesus Christ in his universally redemptive significance, what's required to see it that way is not human consciousness per se, but rather a superconsciousness created in the reader or recipient, a transcendent means of perception by the Holy Spirit. Unlike human intellect alone, human intellect alone, which is the flesh profits nothing, including the human intellect alone profits nothing. Unlike human intellect or mere human intellect, this superconsciousness is available across the scale of human IQ. It's available to people with an IQ of 70. It's available to people with an IQ of 160. It's available to people across the scale of IQ, as it's called intelligence quotient by human measure. 
It's available to children and elderly. It's available to people of various social classes and castes. It is sometimes, this superconsciousness is sometimes called epignosis in the New Testament. In fact, many times. In fact, this is almost a key word in the New Testament. Epignosis. Some people say epinosis, but there's a verb, or there's a, two vowels here, so epignosis. Sometimes called epignosis in the New Testament, such as in Ephesians 1.17, 4.13, Philippians 1.9, Colossians 1.9 and 10, and 3.10 of Colossians, 2.2 of Colossians, 1 Timothy 2.4, Titus 1.1, 2 Peter 1.2, 1.3, as a sample. So to perceive and appreciate the transcendent purpose and intention of God regarding the salvific gathering and summing up of the all things in Christ requires a transcendent mind, the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16. This is why, and Philippians 2.5, this is why it's often difficult for those with the confident hope of universal restoration to convey it to others or to convince others of this hope and of this reality. Why is it difficult? Because God has first to gift the recipient with the gift of epignosis. Ninth. Many of the patristic writers Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus, and others. Many of the patristic writers were obviously guided by this superconsciousness. As a result, they perceived an extraordinary vision in the scriptures of a universal restoration centered in and attributable to God in Christ and by the Holy Spirit. This vision evidently, however, escaped other theologians in history who did not see the vision made so clear in passages like Acts 3.21, 1 Corinthians 15, 19-28, Ephesians 1, 9-11, Colossians 1.20, 1 Timothy 2, 1-6, 4, 9-10, Titus 11, 2-11, etc., so bereft of such a vision, they instead envisaged a rift in the human race and a double destination, which eventually became a double predestination, which tells of the doom and damnation of a segment of humanity, evidently the largest segment, to a torturous eternity. Without a vision, the people do perish. They don't perish in hell, but they perish not knowing the vision or having the vision of Jesus in his universally saving significance. Tenth observation. The proximate, that's P-R-O-X-I-M-A-T-E, we'll call it proximate or we might say more basically the near purpose and intention of the human author of the homily before us called Hebrews was to speak to real people in a real circumstance of crisis that in some ways is comparable to the situation to which Paul directed his fiery epistle to the churches in Galatia. 
under social and religious pressure and accosted with the real threat of ostracism and serious and even life-threatening, Hebrews 12.4, persecution. Some Christians among those addressees were losing heart and were faced with a powerful temptation to renounce their confession of Jesus as the Son of God and revert to the practices of an abrogated religious system and even to return to the offering of redundant animal sacrifices as if anticipating a savior who had already offered one sacrifice that is forever and universally efficacious. It's fairly safe to say that such a situation does not exist among most Christians today. Though many are no doubt faced with the temptation to grow slack in faith and hope and to let their love grow cold. That happens when iniquity abounds. Eleventh, and I'm changing this as I go. In fact, every epistle of the New Testament and even the Gospels were written with a specific immediate purpose in mind. Call that immediate proximate, to use Aristotelian type language. There's proximate and remote. The proximate purpose is what the human author had. The remote purpose, we could say, is what the divine author had. And so again, every scriptural document has remarkable value to you and me today. Not because of its human authorship alone, but because it is God-breathed. And God, the Holy Spirit, with his omniscient view, had a purpose down the corridors of history to a present audience on the level of our time. And almost every time, what the Holy Spirit intends is a vision without which people perish. A vision of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. Don't be impatient with people that don't accept it. Because the only reason you have this knowledge and have this vision is because God gifted you with faith and gifted you with epignosis, the superconsciousness in the Holy Spirit that's able to see that transcendent reality. So we pray for them, we pray for others who don't accept it, that God will grant them the insight that you have. And you only have it by pure grace, so we can't boast about it or brag about it or say, well, I'm in a group that believes this. We're better than your group who doesn't believe this or know this yet. That's not advisable at all. So I'll reiterate the 11th point. In every epistle of the New Testament, and even the Gospels, if you read Luke, for example, you read Luke in the first four verses, he's writing to an individual named Theophilus. He has a purpose for writing Luke from a, a unique perspective for this person. And he therefore has done his homework, he's researched, he's interrogated and interviewed people, he's gathered the facts, and he presents those facts. And it's the divine author 
who puts together the concepts in Luke to show us the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ through that gospel, through those parables. It may even be something that wasn't picked up by the initial audience, but it is picked up by us, and certainly some did. I believe Paul had a firm and full vision of Jesus Christ and that Paul was an avowed and convinced, we'd call him universalist today. Maybe not like some of our modern brands of universalism, which I don't particularly subscribe to, but the Pauline universalism, yes. So finally, reiterating 11th principle. In our next increment, we will get into a second series of observations that will lead up to what may be considered a micro-apocalypse within Hebrews. So again, with apologies to those who are listening to this message or reading it, this is in very early stages, call it a rough cut diamond. It has yet to be polished. It's being born. Usually I don't teach while something is actually being born as a doctrine. I'm doing that today. You ask me why? And I have a profound answer. I don't know. Every epistle in the New Testament, and even the Gospels, was written with a specific immediate purpose in mind. That the entire New Testament as a cohesive compendium of documents offers a view of Jesus as the all-saving Savior begins to come into view. The whole New Testament comes into view. And, in fact, the whole Bible. That's bibliology for the 21st century. This is the seeing of Jesus that we're talking about in Hebrews. We see Jesus. This is what I mean, and I think this is what the biblical writer means in Hebrews, that we see Jesus. And with him, and with the seeing, this seeing of Jesus with the eyes of our heart, we are privileged in anticipating seeing him altogether as he is and becoming like him. And so we look with tiptoe anticipation for the epiphany of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ in Titus 2.13 who is making a second appearance, a second appearance on the horizon in which he brings salvation. Having dealt with sin in his first appearance he comes with salvation in the second. We'll deal with that a little bit longer, a little bit more in Hebrews 9.28. Our next increment is going to be part two, whether Hebrews is an apocalypse, but with a special view to a micro-apocalypse within Hebrews. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We pray that we will all together in this unique case, all together have within us a doctrine formed and a vision created so that we may see Hebrews as it was intended by the divine author for an audience on the level of our time as well as seeing it in its purpose for a particular 
audience of initial recipients. May, in other words, the value of this epistle strike us in such a way that it proves invaluable in every way to cause the overflow of hope in us. And may that hope be contagious in a time when hope is a rare and precious commodity. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.